Good morning, everyone. We are continuing in Ecclesiastes this morning, and we are in chapter 4 today, starting at verse 4 to verse 12. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A, three cord, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. God, we ask that you give us understanding of your word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, you are great. We want to honor you with our speech this morning. We want to honor you with our song. We want to honor you with the way we treat one another. Continue to glorify yourself in your church even as we leave this place as you send us into this world as your emissaries, may we honor your name. To that end, we must be sanctified. There is still so much flaw in us. We fail to compare to your goodness, your glory. And yet you promised to finish the work that you started in us. And so we ask you for what you have promised. With confidence, with faith, we pray. Change us, O oh God. Change our hearts. Give us new hearts that are patterned after your character, your nature. Father, we ask that you would be our provider. And at the same time, we ask that you would use us to provide for each other, to care for one another in the way you have called us to that we would bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Lord, we are so thankful for every heavenly blessing that we have received because of the work of Christ, that you have blessed us first and then called us to obey after. It breaks all the rules, but it transforms our hearts because we know we are loved when you set your unconditional love upon us and then commend us. Give us understanding of your word this morning, we pray. 
For the glory of Jesus, we ask. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're in Ecclesiastes, and one of the key words we've seen over and over again in Ecclesiastes, and I use it all the time, so I have to keep on redefining it. It's here in our ESV translated vanity, and in some other translations, meaningless, but it's the Hebrew term hevel, which means mist or smoke, intangible and fleeting. And we're coming back, actually, to finish up chapter 4. After following two themes which took us into chapter 5, we saw uh, that politics are hevel from both the beginning and ending of chapter 4, and religion is hevel from the following in chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. And so the final theme here in, is here in chapter 4, uh, 4 to 12, and then again in chapter 5, 10, to 612, which I had grouped all together as one theme, and now I've divided them again into a two or three part sermon. Uh, business is Hevel. So we've got all these uh, spheres of human effort, all of our achievements, religion, politics, uh, business now. All these themes were introduced in chapters one to three, and now are picked up again in chapters four to six. And in those earlier chapters, the preacher repeatedly stressed that human effort accomplishes nothing of permanent or significant value. Thus, the label hevel, and it's the most repeated term. It's all a mist, a mirage. God has not allowed His human creatures to become little creators. Ecclesiastes 3.14 says, Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. And thus, all things in the human purview is laid bare in Ecclesiastes, shown to be Hevel, politics, religion, business, and later the last of the Hevel themes will be explored at length. Even wisdom and learning are Hevel. And so this is why the English translation is, and especially the meaningless translation is less than helpful because the author is not saying that these things are all meaningless. There, there is value in human endeavors and especially in the pursuit of wisdom, but ultimately nothing of our merely human efforts will last beyond this short earthly excursion. And like ourselves, all of our efforts will soon become dust. And so the key theme here in our passage this morning, I want to tell you at the outset so you can follow along, is that human busyness is motivated by envy, it disrupts genuine community, and it secures nothing of lasting value. This is Ecclesiastes 4.4, then I saw that all the toil and all the skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, hevel, and a striving after wind. And so contemplating now hard work, even skillful work, the preacher concludes that both result from covetousness, envy. People look at their neighbors and they work hard and they work smart all in order to keep ahead of them. And this cycle of jealousy leading to hard work is as futile as trying to grab the wind. 
Once again, Ecclesiastes stares unblinking into the human heart. You see, the only way, biblically, for us to know our hearts, the only way you or I know the state of our hearts is for the Word of God to lay them bare. Our hearts have sociopathic tendencies. Jeremiah 17, 9-10 says that your heart is so deceitful and so sick that it is impossible for you to understand it. God and God alone, 1 Kings 8, 39, knows the heart of man. He, 1 Chronicles 29, 8, searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And so you say that you work hard to provide for your family, but the Word of God says that you work hard because of covetousness. Exposing the human heart, Ecclesiastes sees only a selfish motive, getting ahead of your neighbors. This motive can never be satisfied, so it leads to ceaseless work and despair. It is like trying to grab onto wind. This is the message. And to the ancient audience, this is the message. It should only be sharpened to a modern North American audience like ourselves, who generally have no concept of how wealthy we really are in comparison to the ancient world and the rest of the world. In the heyday of ancient Rome, and this is as near to this time of of the writing of Ecclesiastes as I could find, but in ancient Rome, a legionnaire could be expected to work anywhere from one to three days to earn the same buying power as one hour at today's minimum wage. A laborer might have worked twice as long for the same money, nearly a week to purchase what you can buy with minimum wage, one hour of minimum wage. And by around the third century, a laborer might have worked half the month in order to buy enough grain to feed his family, which in today's market is somewhere around $12. So today, when a man says that he works hard to provide, or a woman says that she just wants security for her family, we mean a whole lot more than basic food, clothing, and shelter. Bertrand Russell wrote this. He's not a Christian, I don't think, or wasn't. What people mean by the struggle for life is really the struggle for success. What people fear when they engage in the struggle is not that they will fail to get their breakfast next morning, but that they will fail to outshine their neighbors. We want to keep up with the Joneses to show that we are just as good as other people by getting what they have and doing what they do. It is this motivation of envy that drives us to succeed. That's an interesting part of the Bible because it doesn't say some people work hard because of envy and other people have a good motivation. It actually is addressing the human race. You are human, and so this is intrinsic to your DNA that you work because of covetousness, because of envy. Now, we can repent, we can be changed, but this is not unique to a certain subset of the population. Uh, Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. If meeting our needs is our only motivation, feeding and clothing and sheltering our families, then when we had procured enough, when we had enough, we would be content and at peace. 
If truly our motivation was just caring for ourselves and our families, we would get the right amount, and then we would be content and satisfied. But if envy is our motivation, we will never find satisfaction in what we have earned and in the success that we have achieved. Finally, in this verse, it is our neighbor who we envy. And this is a very important term for understanding this passage because it is specifically our neighbor in the 10th commandment. Deuteronomy 5.21, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This to covet and to desire doesn't mean that we want that one. I want to steal his house or his donkey or his servant. It's not the, this isn't the command not to steal. This is the command of the heart that we are not to be motivated by covetousness, the desire to have what somebody else has. And yet it rules us. The accusation of Ecclesiastes is that humans work hard and skillfully precisely because we are breaking the 10th commandment. Rather than loving neighbor as self, Leviticus 19.18, we envy our neighbor. How often have we wished someone success but secretly wanted them to fail? I knew someone who had a really fantastic recipe. Everyone liked the recipe that they made. And people would often ask for the recipe. And this person, who is a lovely person, who I like a great deal, would give people a slightly wrong recipe. We want to be better than others. We want to at least achieve parity with others. And so, instead of a supporting companionship, our relationships become toxic, attempting to outdo one another. Envy is the community killer. It consistently keeps our focus on self. We don't genuinely want others to do well in comparison, and so we exert our efforts in a self-serving direction rather than in help for the community. It's my great shame, and I'll try to tell you without crying. I, when I started preaching, I loved when other people didn't preach as good as me. It made me feel good. It made me feel important. I wanted titles. I can humbly say that I'm so excited that the two best sermons preached in the last month were not from me, and that I enjoyed that, and I'm excited about that. Because God's doing a change in my heart. But this is who I was, a Christian leader, a preacher, who was excited about the fact that someone else dropped the ball so that I would look good. We really do. Sometimes we, we wish people well all the time, but really we want them to do not quite as well as we're doing. I hate when people fast and when people diet. It makes, it's hard because I have a struggle with that. And so it, it just makes it like, here, eat some more food. Stop losing weight. If you guys could all get a little fatter, I won't look out of place. People motivated by envy do not want others genuinely to do well. They also do not help those in need and at the same time accomplish nothing satisfying for themselves either. 
Whatever they do gain is erased by death, and all of their effort is vapor and a pursuit of the wind. So the passage settles in on this choice between seeking personal success and enjoying genuine community. The whole whole point of this passage is you get to choose. Covetousness, seeking self, or real community. And it's going to come back to this uh, in verse 8, I believe, uh, 7. But first it shares two contrasting proverbs to illustrate a balanced approach to work. It's talked about not being busy and that all busyness is out of envy. Then it it gives us this balance, Ecclesiastes 4, 5 to 6. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and of striving after wind. And so these are two contrasting proverbs. They're not against one another. They don't... um, There's no problem combining them, but they they contrast. The first proverb presents the fool as one who, through sloth, destroys himself. The the implication being that because they produce nothing to eat, they will have nothing to consume but their own flesh, uh, killing themselves by starvation. And this, of course, is hyperbole, but the the point being that laziness is self-destructive and results in sudden harm, which is consistent with traditional wisdom literature, especially in the Proverbs. Proverbs 6, 10 to 11 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And so, laziness is self-destructive, and it just comes on you all of a sudden. All of a sudden, it's beyond your help. And so the first proverb promotes work. The second proverb makes it clear that work motivated by wisdom rather than envy will find a balance. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Better to have one handful and to enjoy it than two hands full and to be constantly striving. It means essentially better to be content with a little and take time to enjoy what you have than to be compulsively driven by envy to have more, which results in a futile pursuit because you will never be satisfied. So the verse first stated, all toil and all skills and work come from a man's envy. But the second verse then says that total inactivity leads to starvation, so you still need to work. There's a work that's motivated by envy. There's a wise work that keeps yourself and your family fed. And then the concluding verse commends a third and best option, taking all things into account, contentment is better. You know, our hearts resonate with stories about joy in contentment. Our hearts resonate with stories about living the simple life and enjoying the good gift of enough. But our hearts are prone towards evil discontentment of envy. The good news won't come until chapter 5, verse 19, where we learn that contentment, which is the power to give thanks for what God has given to accept our lot and rejoice in our work, this too is a gift of God. That comes later in chapter 5. For right now, the the actual focus um, is, is 
something different I'm going to get to. I just jumped ahead of myself here. This is this idea that this is a gift from God to accept our lot and rejoice in our work is actually the focus of the famous I can do all things through Christ verse. You know, this is not just a verse for boxers and MMA fighters. Like, they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. This, in the context, Philippians 4, 11 to 13 says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. So the, the hopeless situation of the human heart, steeped in sinful self-seeking, finds hope in Christ Jesus, who grants us a new heart and a new spirit. You can't change your envious heart. The Bible has discerned it for you. You didn't see it, but the Bible has now told you you have an envious heart. And you can't change your envious heart, but in Christ we are given a replacement. This is good news. But as I said, when I got ahead of myself, the gospel focus here in Ecclesiastes 4 is actually all about community and companionship. The previous material has made it clear that the life of striving is fundamentally anti-neighbor. So you have two options. You can love your neighbor as yourself, or you can covet what your neighbor has. You cannot do both. When the point of life is to get ahead of your neighbor's, you are no longer seeking the best for them. And so envious self-serving alienates us from genuine community. In verses 7 and 8, then, paint the picture of a person all alone. Again, it's hyperbolic. Not everybody is in this exact situation, but it's just throwing it out there, this picture of what it's like to be alone. Uh, verse 7 and 8, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Again, this is Hevel. This is mist fleeting. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. And so this is just a basic picture of a lonely individual Although not necessarily is he unmarried in that culture, he has no friends. He works hard but finds no satisfaction. Not only is this hevel a mist, but it is an unhappy business, or another translation is an evil task. Perhaps his obsession with acquiring more left him with insufficient time to cultivate true friendships. Or perhaps he was so focused on his success that all of his relationships fell away. It doesn't tell us. Wisdom texts often leave such things unspecified to encourage that we would just think about, why did such a situation occur? It doesn't tell us all the answers, so we'll contemplate. How did this guy end up alone? In a modern example, I just read a headline this week, just happened to read it. I didn't read the article, it seemed dumb. But it was an article from Blomberg that says, women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer. Duh. <laughs> there, there's a motivation for you. Sacrifice committed relationships, and especially children, since they are so needy, and you will almost certainly have more wealth. It's like they're trying to create this, uh, this picture of the lonely person. 
Again, these are extreme examples, hyperbole to make the point. One can sacrifice community for wealth anywhere along the spectrum. You don't have to be completely alone to have been isolating yourself. It's been an interesting season over the last few years about isolation. We are created for community. For what will we isolate ourselves? What success, what safety would cause us to isolate ourselves in abandoned community? The great tragedy of this person is that they never ask, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? The vanity of it all is that unremitting determination and single-minded diligence reap not self-fulfillment, but self-deprivation. This is that person who's really determined to make something of themselves, works hard. Remember, this isn't just hard work it's talking about, but skillful work. Hard work and skillful work, the product of our envy. And so the situation is hevel and a bad business because it will not bring the satisfaction and fulfillment it seems to promise. All that hard work and determination and single-minded diligence end up with nothing. Then verses 9 to 12 build the positive case for life lived in community rather than individualistic toil for self. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep, or how, yeah, how can one keep warm alone? Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes is full of these better statements. Two are better than one. Wisdom is better than foolishness. It compares the life here of individual pursuits with all its deficiencies and its futile end with a life lived in community, loving neighbor as self. They have a good reward. Is that reward material? No, it's the reward is when they fall, they will have someone there to lift them up. The reward is when they're cold, they have someone to keep them warm. They have someone to fight side by side with. This is the reward of working in community. We are designed by God, called by God for community. The one thing in all of God's pristine creation, Genesis 2, 18, that was not good was that the man should be alone without a helper. So here, companionship is shown to be beneficial for working together or when one falls down in any way and needs help getting up. A companion can keep a friend warm on a cold night and can help fight, fight off enemies. <laughs> Surprisingly, this is not actually a proverb about marriage, although marriage may be one example of its truth. Nor is God the third strand, as is often suggested when this verse is used at weddings, though, though it is true that God-centered marriages are important. The image of a threefold cord not easily broken was actually a well-known ancient Near Eastern proverb about the benefits of friendship. And then it was popularized in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written hundreds of years earlier. So, but the most basic meaning is, if two friends is good, how much better is three? Right? It's, more is better in terms of relationship and community. The most natural setting for this 
second scene. The first scene, again, is this hyperbolic scene of someone who's alone and lonely, has no community. The second scene, uh, the setting is, is a journey in the ancient world which was fraught with peril. As with any danger and difficulty in life, a companion is essential for a journey. Someone to help you if you stumble, warm you should you freeze, and help fight off bandits should they attack. So from an ancient perspective, this isn't talking about a wife. This is talking about a partner that you go on a business trip with. An unfortunate side effect of this becoming a common wedding verse is that it is common in our day and age to get married and then merely extend our selfish and individualistic lifestyles to the family unit. I stumbled on that. Let me say it again. It is common today to get married and then still be individualistic, still be self-seeking. Our family essentially becomes a, a public extension of ourselves in our envious pursuits, often even making it worse. The house, the cars, the holidays, and the clothes of our spouse and kids compared to that of our neighbors, feed into the motivation for anxiety and long hours of work. So what Ecclesiastes is doing here is sketching a countercultural pathway, work carried out for and in community for the betterment of others rather than an envy-driven, self-centered existence striving for empty advancement. And this still takes place today even with those who have a spouse and children. There is a fraudulent sort of friendship and even a fraudulent sort of hospitality which is motivated out of envy, which puts our best foot forward so that people see how successful we are and how ordered our lives. We want our acquaintances to know that we are skilled cooks and homemakers. This is neither true friendship nor true hospitality. It is a result of the subtle influence the world has on us. Envy and boasting go hand in hand, but love, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, does not envy or boast. True hospitality shares all of life, the good and the difficult. It invites people into our mess. It shares what we actually have. There's, there's nothing wrong with entertaining this is the word I use to separate uh, what we call it when we throw a party and we have all the best things we can barely afford at special occasions. I enjoy that. There's nothing wrong with that. But this is not hospitality. We must at least have the hospitality. We must distinguish it from genuine hospitality and friendship, which requires welcoming people into our lives as they are. My parents, unfortunately, are here. I have to talk about them. They were a fantastic example to me in this situation. I've told this story numerous times, probably at least twice a year. Growing up, my parents had people in our home constantly, rough people, hard people to be around. I didn't like it at the time. I'm, I'm so impressed now. But we had people over after church, after uh, midweek things, all the time. Our house seemed to always have people there, and, and we did not have a lot. We had enough. I remember having nice things, but our carpets were always an outdated color. And, and, you know, things were just not what some of my friends had. And, and I remember the most 
that my parents would invite so many people over after church and have nothing to give them. And my dad, literally at times, I remember him searching through the couch for change so they could go buy a two liter of Coca-Cola. And my mom would pop some popcorn and we would have people over to our house, believe it or not, to have like doled out half glasses of Coca-Cola so we would go around and eat popcorn and cinnamon toast. It's what we had. We shared it with everybody. Genuine hospitality. Come, eat what is mine. We have to carefully consider the degree to which we have been influenced by the world's values. We've been taken in by imposters to genuine fellowship and hospitality while striving for validation according to worldly metrics for success. This is no light thing, church. Derek Kidner observed that a fault may be hidden not because it is too small to see, but because it is too characteristic to register. That is, we fail to recognize our sin because it is so common to us. It's the log we miss while searching for slivers. It's just been there the whole time. We're so used to it. We are used to this sort of envy and covetousness, and we, we are used to seeing it in others who call themselves believers. The good news is that in Christ we have been freely welcomed into a community founded and eternally established by God. God has loved us, and because God has loved us, we will fulfill His command to love one another. We are welcomed into the community of Christ, His own church, which the Master has commanded, Galatians 6-2, that we should each bear the burdens of one another. This is already ours. And the name of Christ is already ours. The validation that we crave is already granted to us by our loving Heavenly Father who dotes on us. Throughout Scripture, calls us His treasured possession, the ones which He is jealous for not because of who we are in ourselves, but who we are in Christ. And God sees it before it even happens. So I want to end this morning with Philippians 2, 1 to 5. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What a promise. As sinful as we have been, as desperate as we need repentance and transformation, it is ours in Christ Jesus. 
as the mind of Christ is ours, and we are transformed daily by the renewing of our minds in passages like Ecclesiastes 4. God is transforming His church. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. It correctly identifies who we are when we cannot, and it teaches us Your way, not in a condemning way, but as a promise. The mind that is ours in Christ loves our neighbor as ourself. And this is already who we are, even if we don't yet realize it. We are those who you call holy because you have made us holy. And yet you command us to live as who we really are. Thank you that what was impossible for us is possible in Christ Jesus. And that we can have this mind among us in Christ Jesus. Father, I'm so grateful to be a part of a community that has this begun in us. That there are so many times where people are, are genuinely caring for one another and treating each other like community. And I'm so eager and excited to see the fulfillment of it, the fullness of it. Transform us by your word as your spirit applies it to us. In Jesus' name I ask for his glory. Amen.